Hello and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library, which is on the campus of Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and as always, the fun time Troy Eller English is here. How you doing, Troy? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you? I'm I'm just fine, just fine. Just reeling from all this labor activities have been going on across the country. It's and I just heard recently that the MGM casino in Detroit, the workers have walked out. Yes. Yes. It's a hot labor summer has become hot labor fall. It is definitely that. And as always at the Ruther Library, we are always in solidarity with our brothers and sisters because we're a 100% union shop at the Ruther Library. So if you have any questions about that, we are on your side constantly. Aren't we, Troy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Makes no mistake about that. Well, today we have a very big show. Big meaning we are talking about a larger than life union leader. Uh, we are talking about a man who put it all on the line for his beliefs, never wavering about his idea of what a union should be like, even under the pressure from fellow union brothers and sisters, the police, the FBI, and the federal government. The man is a legend in union history, and everyone should be familiar with him. And I am talking about Harry Bridges. He was president of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union for about 40 years. And who better to talk about Harry Bridges than Robert Cherney? who wrote the big book on Bridges called Harry Bridges, Labor Radical, Labor Legend. Robert Cherney received his PhD from Columbia University in 1972 and is currently Professor Emeritus of History at the San Francisco State University. He has spent over 35 years writing this book, going through archives all around the world, from the Ruther Library to Russia. Um, he even interviewed Bridges before he died and, not, and others to make this a very compelling biography. It is an amazing story of not rags to riches, but rags to power for the common good about a wandering soul who sailed into America at the beginning of the 20th century and then to lead one of the most militant unions in this country. So I keep mentioning how big this book is, how big of a man Harry Bridges is. Well, it turned into having, having a big show as well. Uh, we're going to do part one and a part two. We rarely do that, folks, but it is such an important story for us all to learn that we didn't want to cut it down any further. It's very relevant to what's going on today, this summer, this fall, for the past couple of years about labor, to understand how this man, Harry Bridges, led on a basis of democracy and principles of what a union is. So part one will be about his early life. Uh, we, he was influenced to carry on the principles of democracy when um, he applied it into the ILWU. We also talk about the Longshoremen's Strike of 1934, one of the most famous, famous labor strikes in the 20th century and defined the power of ILWU and the power of men and women who take back what is theirs and the that is the dignity in the workplace. Um, so sit back, relax, and enjoy Robert Cherney telling us all about Harry Bridges and then learn more, you need to buy the book from your independent bookstore, Harry Bridges, Labor Radical, Labor Legend. Bob, welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure, actually, to have you on here. 
Yeah, well, thanks for the invitation. Um, I I had uh, a, a very productive visit to the Ruther Library very early in my research. And we'll talk about that a little later. I can't wait to hear exactly what it was. That was before my time, too. So that was a long time ago. Um, first of all, we just asked the first general question. Why did you decide to write a book and take on this huge figure of Harry Bridges? Well, um, it was opportunity that came knocking. Um, up until the mid-80s, 1980s, most of my published work, research, had been in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, but I'd gotten involved in some labor studies developments at San Francisco State and ended up teaching their labor history course at one point. Uh, and around 1985 or so, Nikki Bridges, the wife of Harry Bridges, uh, approached me and asked if I would be interested in writing a biography of Harry. And I said, well, let's talk about that, but it sounds like a really interesting possibility. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that what had happened was that um, after Harry retired as president of the ILWU, uh, the, the union itself asked their retiring officers to do an oral history or write their memoirs or something of that sort. There was a, a resolution by, by the convention of, of the union at one point. Mm. Uh, and so most of the others did oral histories where they were interviewed and that was all uh, put on, on uh, so long ago, it was actually put on paper. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's now available on those are now available online and Nikki and Harry first thought maybe Nikki would do something like that and she did a bunch of interviews with Harry on mm -hmm. recorded interviews she took a course on bi biography at San Francisco State in the history department and then she decided they decided you know, that was a bigger project than what Nikki wanted to do. And so they contracted with um, a ghostwriter uh, who did more interviews on tape and who actually drafted something, but the publisher didn't like it and Harry and Nikki didn't like it. Right. And so at that point, Nikki asked the uh, person who had taught the course she took on biography, Peter Carroll, if he would do it. And Peter said, no, I'm in the middle of something. Why don't you talk to Bob Cherney? <laughs> and yeah. therefore, they did. Yeah. And in that long roundabout way, uh, I ended up agreeing to uh, write a biography of Harry Bridges. And one of Peter Carroll's contributions to this was that he convinced them that what was needed was not an oral history, uh, just sort of splicing together a group of interviews, but a, a real academic biography complete with footnotes and archival research. Mm -hmm. And that was what interested me with it as well. Uh, and there was a lot of research to do. So when this all started in the mid eighties, I, I did have the opportunity to interview both Harry and Nikki, uh, but this was really toward the end of Harry's life, in fact. Uh, and some of, his, some of the interviews I did with him were useful, uh, but 
but they sort of tapered off after a while. And so I got some interesting comments about his early life, but it, it, it didn't get a whole lot uh, later than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started the archival in, uh, research, which really took me uh, all across the country and to both Russia and Australia mm -hmm. uh, to do archival research in both of those places. Uh, there were important uh, papers in every presidential library, starting with Herbert Hoover and going all the way to Jimmy Carter. Um, important papers in uh, ILWU locals and at their international headquarters, uh, especially the locals in Portland and uh, in, uh, in Hawaii. Um, papers of Supreme Court justices, Harry Bridges FBI file. Yeah. You know, as soon as I started the project, I ordered his FBI file and it came in little dibs and dabs over the next 15 years. It took that <laughs> long for the FBI to uh, do the whole thing. Uh, they had to carefully redact <laughs> virtually every page Mm -hmm. Sometimes entire pages were redacted. Other times it was just sentences here and there that were redacted. Uh, but nonetheless, that proved to be uh, quite interesting, quite interesting. Uh, so I continued doing archival research. I started writing as well. I, I, I'd begun to draft the first few chapters uh, by uh before Harry died, and he had a chance to see what I had drafted. Uh, but beginning in the mid-1990s, as I was continuing that archival research, I also ended up with some significant uh, responsibilities at the university that really delayed much more writing. In fact, delayed it until I, I finally retired. Uh, so uh, the whole project started in 1985 and finally came to print in 2023. Uh, but uh, throughout that entire period, I knew that sooner or later, I was going to take that huge mass of archival material I'd accumulated and turn it into a biography. And you certainly did. It's it's quite the biography. It really is. I've enjoyed, I enjoyed reading the whole thing. It was wonderful. Good. And it goes up to on top of all the other biographies as well that are about great labor leaders. But there's always, with any kind of biography, there's always they're always talking about the transformation period and tackling the individual such as Harry Bridges, who, you know, he came from a simple seaman to become one of the most radical labor leaders in the 20th century. What experiences did Harry Bridges experience that helped define him in his early years? Well, uh, when Harry was asked about the source of his politics, he always started with growing up in Australia, because at the time he was growing up, the Australian Labour Party was a significant political force in Australia. It was one of the first Labour parties to be organized anywhere in the world, and, and certainly one of the first to achieve any significant political power. Uh, his father was a member. And his favorite uncle was a member. Uh, and Harry's favorite uncle figured largely in his self-identification because uh, Uncle Henry, uh, whose nickname was Harry, 
um, was a, an organizer for the farm workers union. Uh, he was a sheep shearer and, and, and pre wool presser. And uh, that was a, an important union in Australia and an important component in the Australian Labour Party. And this uncle was also an organizer for the Australian Labour Party. And uh, Harry was so taken with this uncle that he began to call himself Harry. His, his actual name was Alfred, uh, the same as his father. But he took his uncle's name and, and called himself Harry Bridges. Uh, from the time he was a teenager. Uh, and uh, he really rejected his father's business career. His father was a, a developer. Um, he owned rental properties and so forth, and that's what he wanted Harry to be. Uh, Harry was much more attracted to his uncle's more adventurous lifestyle uh, and, uh, and decided he wanted to go to sea. Uh, and much against his father's wishes, he began doing that uh, as a teenager. So he he had uh, a, a bit less than 10 years of formal education. Um, it served him very well. Uh, he had uh, he could he, he was excellent in public speaking. Um, he could read and, and write very well, which set him apart from many of the people he worked with on ships or on the docks. Mm -hmm. So that the education he had did play a role uh, in his rise to union leadership. Um, but as I said, he went to sea as a teenager, uh, beginning in late 1917. And he continued uh, that work just essentially locally. Uh, first shipping out from Melbourne and going back and forth between Melbourne and Tasmania. Uh, which was a, a, a rather dangerous trip at times. Uh, and he was once shipwrecked on that uh, uh, trip, one of those trips. And then later uh, between Melbourne and New Zealand. Uh, and on one of his trips to New Zealand, he had a chance to get a ship to San Francisco. Uh, Harry uh, read a lot as a young man, especially adventure novels, especially seafaring novels. He just loved all of Jack London's work. And so when he had a chance to get a ship to San Francisco, he jumped at the chance because he wanted to see those places Jack London had written about. Uh, up until this time, he had always been shipping out under sail, uh, not, not on steamships. Uh, there was still a lot of, of, of commerce, uh, ocean-borne commerce, that, that went under sail as late as, as the 1920s. And Harry's uh, trip to San Francisco was his last trip under sail. Uh, once he arrived in San Francisco, he, he looked around a bit. He, he went to see some of the places Jack London had written about. And he signed on for a very short trip uh, on a steamship. And he liked it so much that that's what he did from then on. Uh, and so he he had a couple of trips, uh, either from San Francisco or uh, from the port of Los Angeles uh, on steamships, either up and down the coast or all the way uh, around uh, through the Panama Canal to the East Coast. At one point, he ended up in New Orleans 
on the beach, as they say, meaning uh, he, there were no ships available and he was just sort of stranded there. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to the, the 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 hall, the Union Hall periodically to see if there was a ship available. He was looking for a ship to Australia. He wanted to go back home uh, or he wanted to get back onto the West Coast. Nothing was available. There was a big strike at that point. Um, the uh, Siemens International Union, uh, well, its predecessor, the International Siemens Union, uh, the Marine firemen uh, were on strike. Um, Bridges took part in that strike. He was once arrested uh, during uh, that strike. And during that strike, he also joined the industrial workers of the world. Uh, He was recruited at the Union Hall. That was a favorite recruiting place for the IWW. And he joined and and took part in, in some IWW activities. And he later credited the IWW with taking him uh, further along the direction that had started in Australia. Uh, In Australia, he had come to believe in the uh, importance of a labor party as a part of politics. In the IWW, he came to reject part of that Australian experience because the Australian Labor Party was quite racist, uh, mm-hmm. opposed to any sort of immigration to Australia from Asia uh, or from any other place where uh, the immigrants were not white. Uh, the Australian Labor Party was committed to the white Australia policy uh, that uh, was also true of other political parties in Australia. But the IWW. Uh, gave Bridges a very different approach to race, arguing that labor uh, should be united regardless of the barriers of race, uh, that that labor solidarity had to be colorblind. And that became a very important principle for Bridges throughout his entire career as a labor leader, that unions had to be colorblind. They had to be thoroughly integrated, uh, that that the solidarity of labor couldn't have no such artificial boundaries, that it was to be based on class and not on other distinctions. And eventually he came to include uh, gender with that as well, to argue that women had a full right to to have jobs as well as as men, jobs on the waterfront, jobs in warehouses, and so forth. Uh, So the IWW was a fairly brief part of his experience. He left the IWW after maybe two years or so, uh, about the time that he started working on the San Francisco waterfront as a longshoreman. Um, But it was an important part of his his, uh, developing political consciousness. Right. Um, And that was the good thing about the IWW. They were educators, big educators, absolutely. Yeah. Um, exactly. You mentioned the work. What kind? What was work like on the docks during the twenties and thirties? Um, you hear all the time about the the shape up. Uh, you hear about people getting injured constantly. What was the environment like for people who have no idea what a dock is like? Yeah. Well, the the San Francisco uh, waterfront uh, was theoretically had a union. 
but it was a union that um, that Bridges and others later called a company union. As I analyze the situation, I think that it was much more of a racket <laughs> uh, because the companies benefited from this union, but the companies hadn't organized the union. The union had grown out of a failed strike in 1919. There had been an actual union on the San Francisco waterfront that stretched all the way back to the gold rush in various iterations. Uh, and in 1919, there was a major strike after, after World War I, effort to recover lost wages and to also recover lost control over the job itself. Uh, it was a long drawn out strike and it failed. Uh, at one point, a group of, of bosses, now bosses were gang bosses and walking bosses, which is not quite the same as management. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's the terminology that was used. Longshoremen work in gangs. A gang consisted of perhaps 12 to 18 men, half of whom worked in the hold of a ship, half of whom worked on the dock, on the pier. Uh, those in the hold were either loading or unloading cargo. Those on the pier were, were handling the cargo at that end, either during the loading or the unloading. Each gang had a gang boss. And for the entire ship, and each gang worked one hold of the ship. You know, there might, a, a big ship might have four holds or five holds. And each gang had its own hold where it worked, which is, you know, an opening in the deck. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a winch that, that, that lifts uh, or, or, or takes objects, uh, uh, loads of, of cargo in and out of the hold. Um, the ship as a whole had a walking boss who supervised all of the holds on the ship. So the walking boss and the gang boss are, are, are essentially, um, well, they're management to be sure. Right. But they also, in a sense, come from the longshoremen because um, they also, the, the gang bosses also shaped up just like the longshoremen did. The shape up was the way in which longshoremen were employed. And what it meant was that at 7 a.m., everyone who wanted to work that day would show up on the waterfront opposite the ferry building. The gang bosses had their own shape up, and, the, and some of them would be hired and some of them would not be hired. And the gang bosses would say, okay, we need a gang at this pier uh, at eight o'clock. And the gang bosses would then come to where the longshoremen were shaping opposite the ferry building. And there would be some regular gang members and they would all meet in a regular place. Uh, and their gang boss would come and say, okay, we're going to go to pier so-and-so. Uh, but we don't have a complete gang. I need to find a couple more people. So they, the gang boss would would find a couple more people who were not a part of the regular gang to, to fill out his numbers. Uh, and then the gang would go to the to that location. If you were a regular gang member, it wasn't necessarily a guarantee of employment because your gang boss might not be given a job for any given day. 
uh, or it may be that there are more people that show up uh, than are needed for that day. And so if you didn't uh, have a job, then by the time that that uh, eight o'clock rolled around, you might go from peer to peer, essentially mm -hmm. prospecting. You know, maybe somebody would be injured and they need to replace someone on the job. Uh, there was no guarantee of work. Right. Work was by the day and by the job. Uh, this meant that, that there was a, a great deal of uncertainty in the life of a longshoreman. But there was also a certain advantage here, which is that if you wanted to take a day off, you could do it. You just didn't show up for the shape up. Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of a casual labor market had both advantages, perhaps small ones, and disadvantages, often major ones. One of the implications of the shape up was that it was very easy to get rid of troublemakers. Troublemakers meaning people who challenged the boss, people who challenged the, the so-called union that existed on the waterfront. Uh, you just give orders to the gang bosses, don't hire that man. Right. That was essentially the end of the person's employment on the waterfront. Um, now, I, as I said, there was a union of sorts that was created in the aftermath of the 1919 strike. It was organized by a group of gang bosses and walking bosses, and they continued to control it. Uh, so it wasn't directly controlled by the companies, but it just never challenged the companies, first mm -hmm. of all. And, and second of all, you had to pay dues in order to work. If you didn't pay your dues to the blue book, which was the color of the union's dues book, if you didn't have a paid up blue book, uh, the gang boss had to uh, throw you out. Uh, so in that regard, uh, I think it really qualifies as a racket uh, because you had to pay your dues in order to work, but the union provided very little in the way of representation. Uh, more than one person had the experience of going to a, a supposed union meeting and raising some kind of a protest and just being bodily thrown out of the meeting uh, because the, the, the men who ran the blue book were not about to tolerate any kind of challenges. So that was the situation. And it's important to also realize how dangerous the work could be on the waterfront at this time. You know, we've got men working in the hold, which was 40, 50 feet deep, mm -hmm. uh, and sling loads are being hauled up out of the hold. And if they're not properly packed in the sling, and the sling comes apart, all those things can come crashing down on the men in the hold. Um, there were a whole range of other possibilities for danger, uh, not just from falling objects, but for example, Harry himself in 1929 had his foot crushed. He was unloading uh, some heavy piping from uh, the hold of a ship. And the way that these things were unloaded is that they would hook the, the uh, cable onto them and then pull them up. 
And Harry didn't scramble out of the way fast enough, and his foot got caught between two of these big metal pipes, and, mm -hmm. and his foot was crushed, and he was out of a job for uh, as long as it took for his foot to heal. Those sorts of injuries were not unusual. Um, the official statistics of injuries are really quite dramatic. On the San Francisco waterfront, there was one disabling injury for approximately every hour that was worked in the mm. 1920s. Um, now, now that's a now of course there's a couple of thousand longshoremen, but it's still rather staggering that among those several thousand longshoremen. On average, one of them suffered a disabling injury every hour. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, it was the second most dangerous job in the U.S. after coal mining during the during the 1920s. Now, if you were injured, what were your options? Well, you could apply for state working workmen's compensation. Uh, that there was a state law that went back to the Progressive Era that a lot of provided for that. But if you did apply for workman's compensation, uh, that was charged against the employer. And so you didn't want to apply for workman's compensation all that often, or you might find out that you just weren't ever chosen for a work gang because you were, had become too expensive for the employer. Hmm. So Harry was rather reluctant when his foot was crushed. He was reluctant to apply for workman's compensation. Uh, and his gang boss was supportive. He, he gave him lighter work, but he couldn't even handle the lighter work because his foot was in such bad condition. And so he reluctantly did apply for workman's compensation and was, was off for several weeks while his foot healed. Uh, but that's just an example of how difficult the situation could be if you were injured. Um, the Blue Book did theoretically negotiate contracts every few years, did uh, negotiate wages. The wages um, uh, were low, but, but they were consistent mm -hmm. uh, as long as you could get work. Uh, and Harry did okay throughout most of the 20s. Uh, sometimes he'd let his dues go uh lapse and and uh and had to try to find work on some of the docks where the blue book was not able to control things especially some of the docks that handled foreign steamships right uh some of the foreign steamship lines didn't deal with the blue book and he was sometimes able to get some work there uh at, on on one occasion he joined an effort to revitalize the old union uh, and marched in a Labor Day parade. And the uh, Blue Book um, officers were right there watching who it was marching, taking down the names. Uh, and he found himself blacklisted for a number of months mm -hmm. until he was finally able to get back into a regular gang. Um, so that was what life was like in the 1920s. Right. And given Bridge's background in Australia, his commitment to unions, his commitment to uh, racial uh, solidarity, uh, to class solidarity across racial lines, uh, uh, 
he, as I said, took some part in efforts to organize, uh, but they were all dead ends. Uh, and all that he got out of it was being blacklisted for a time. Right. But it all kind of came to head in 1932, 33, finally in 34, where you have one of the most bloody and important strikes in the U.S. history, uh, specifically for the West Coast. But um, can we talk about this? It's been talked a lot about this strike, but why don't we just briefly talk about it? But actually, let's talk about why Harry thought we had a beautiful united front that he, that he called it. What did he mean by that? Right. Um, well, of course, United Front was uh, a concept that the a terminology that uh, the Communist Party used. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the early 1930s, 32, 33, uh, Bridges had come into contact with Communist Party organizers. Uh, he always said that he never joined. Um, but he clearly worked with communists on the waterfront and with party organizers on the waterfront. And that concept of a united front uh, really fit with the way he thought about things as a result of his uh, background in Australia and his experience with the IWW, that a united front brought together all workers, regardless of, of, of uh, race and, and so forth. Uh, and regardless of their particular trade, um, that strike in 1934 started as a longshore strike. Um, it started with an effort by the International Longshoremen's Association to reestablish its presence on the West Coast docks. Uh, there hadn't been that presence on the San Francisco docks since before World War I. Uh, but there had been a continuing ILA local in Tacoma that had managed to survive all through the 1920s. Um, and in the early 30s, the ILA set out to reestablish itself up and down the Pacific coast, mostly uh, as a result of the efforts of the people in Tacoma. Uh, and Bridges joined the new ILA local that was chartered in San Francisco, Local 38-79. The number of it, 38-79, referred to the fact that the ILA chartered Local 38 on the entire Pacific Coast. All Pacific Coast ports were in the, the Pacific Coast District. And they all had the local number 38, but then they had separate numbers for the individual ports. Yeah. Uh, so local 3879 was for all longshoring in the San Francisco Bay Area, regardless of the type of cargo, regardless of whether it was in San Francisco or Oakland. So it was, to that extent, an industrial charter. Because in the old days, there had been separate unions for lumber, longshoremen, and, and different types of cargo. So this was an effort to bring together all longshore workers into one local. And that's the way the other locals up and down the coast were also chartered. Their jurisdiction was geographic 
rather than by type of cargo or type of ship or whatever. Um, so with the chartering of Local 3879, Bridges and uh, some of those he got he knew well, a few of whom were either Communist Party members or close to the party, uh, party but others of whom had no connections to the Communist Party. Uh, a group of them began to meet as a caucus. They did so uh, in a meeting hall run by a German working men's organization located on Albion Street. And so, and they called themselves Albion Hall. They were a group of maybe two dozen or so. They didn't all attend every meeting, but they were essentially a caucus within that local. Uh, and they would meet ahead of, of the local meetings and try to discuss what was coming up that day and what kind of a position they wanted to take. Among other things, very early on, they uh, challenged the older version of the Longshore Local, which was all white, and argued that we had to open membership to every longshore worker, regardless of race. And that was one of their early accomplishments. When it came time to elect officers, Bridmet were both elected uh, to the executive board of the local. So they were successful to that extent uh, in the first local election. The local officers, however, um, especially the President Lee Holman um, didn't seem to see themselves as in some way the heirs of the Blue Book. They wanted to collect dues, but they didn't really want a lot of trouble. And mm -hmm. so from the beginning, Bridges and his group were challenging the local president. Um, as a district, the ILA was moving toward uh, contract negotiations. They were seeking contract negotiations under the terms of the National Industrial Recovery Act passed in 1933, which provided for collective bargaining through agents chosen by workers. And using that as a leverage, the ILA was pushing to have one contract covering all the ports on the entire Pacific coast with the same working conditions, the same wages, the same hours uh, in every port, so that ports could not be played off against one another uh, in, in terms of uh, negotiating wages and hours separately. And, and so trying to get um, more work in one port uh, by by offering lower wages and uh, or or shorter hour or longer hours or whatever um so the the coast district officers were tended to be dominated again by the portland or by the tacoma local the tacoma local was the oldest they had the most experience they they really were the leaders of the district and it was the district convention that established the basic requirements that they they wanted to accomplish in bargaining. They wanted a coastwise contract. They wanted uh, a union hiring hall, 
to replace the shape up. There had been a union hiring hall that survived in Tacoma, but that was the only one where there was anything like that anywhere on the coast. Uh, but they, they wanted a hiring hall in each port uh, that would be run by the union. And they wanted the same wages and, and working conditions all up and down the coast. So these were established, these were the, the, the demands of the union that were established before Bridges came into leadership. These came out of the Pacific Coast District uh, before he uh, was elected to the San Francisco uh, Executive Board. Uh, the companies claimed that they couldn't negotiate coastwide that they could only negotiate port by port, which was a tactic that had been used before, of course, to keep the workers divided. Mm -hmm. um, and so this became a, an important issue at the very beginning as they were trying to engage in contracts uh, because all these shipping companies operated, well, the biggest shipping companies all operated all up and down the coast. So it was essentially the same employers in these ports. There might be very small companies that didn't operate everywhere, but the biggest companies all operated in all the ports. There were different uh, companies that um, were responsible for the loading and unloading of the ships that operated in each port, but it was both the shipping companies and, and these stevedoring companies that they had to negotiate with. And it took a lot of, of pressure, uh, both from the new newly established union and from federal mediators to get negotiations focused on a coastwise contract. But the negotiations kept just kept stalling and breaking down. And finally, the district voted that they would go on strike. Uh, if if contract if there were not some some uh, appropriate outcome of the negotiations, uh, and so in early May they went on strike all up and down the entire Pacific coast, every port from Bellingham, which is just south of Canada, uh, to San Diego, which is just just north of Mexico. Uh, Trump tried to close down the whole west coast. And pretty successful, uh, in fact, very successful uh, in the Northwest, a bit less so in the central area, least so in the South. So companies were able to shift some of their shipping from North to South and then send it up by train, but that was you know, expensive and, and uh, time consuming. When the longshore workers went on strike, and began picketing the docks, some of the seagoing unions immediately went on strike themselves uh, with their own issues because they too had really been cut out of any kind of collective bargaining relationship uh, since, since the end of World, World War I. Uh, and so within a very short time, it was not only the Longshore Union, but it was the International Seamen's Union where the, 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 the Pacific Coast Group was the Sailors Union of the Pacific, which was uh, deckhands. 
marine firemen and and uh this, these were the uh the men who worked in the whole in the the engine room of the steamships uh marine cooks and stewards uh the men who cooked and uh cleaned and that sort of thing both on passenger ships and on on freight or freight ships uh, and the licensed unions uh the masters mates and pilots uh and the marine engineers so all of those unions soon declared strikes of their own. And so shipping was really tied up all up and down the coast. And during the strike, it, some new unions, in fact, were spun off. In San Francisco, for example, uh, a group of, of warehouse workers revitalized an old ILA uh, charter for warehouse workers. Mm -hmm. uh, and radio operators began to organize as a separate uh, licensed officers union. So the strike itself spun off some organizing. And so when Bridges spoke of a united front, he was talking about this kind of labor movement that involved all of the maritime workers all up and down the entire Pacific coast. Um, the strike really came to center in San Francisco. San Francisco was the largest port. It was the largest longshore local. It was where the headquarters of the sailors of the Union, Sailors Union of the Pacific was located. It was where most of the steamship companies had their headquarters. And so the strike really came to center in San Francisco. And in San Francisco, labor relations had been dominated since the early 1920s by a, an organization called the Industrial Association of San Francisco. The Industrial Association was made up of almost every major corporation in the city, uh, including shipping companies, banks, insurance companies, railroad companies, oil refining companies, you know, uh, any major corporation in the city, uh, except the Bank of America, interestingly enough, uh, was involved with the Industrial Association. Uh, and the Industrial Association throughout the 1920s had dominated labor relations in San Francisco. They took great pride in what they called the American plan, which meant you don't recognize unions as representing workers. That was what they called the American plan. Um, and so in this strike in 1934, at first it was between the unions, the maritime unions, and the shipping companies uh, and the stevedoring companies. But as the strike drug on and on, the Industrial Association eventually stepped in to play a bigger and bigger role. But at the same time, the international president of the ILA also came out from New York to San Francisco to try to, to bring a settlement. This was Joe Ryan, uh, whose nickname was King Ryan because mm -hmm. of his authoritarian approach to union leadership. Uh, in New York, he had enormous power over uh, the union uh, and, and in 
the other East Coast locals, but especially in New York, because uh, he used the shape up to eliminate anyone who challenged his leadership of the union. Uh, he came to San Francisco in, in June and said he was going to negotiate a settlement. And he did, but it did not provide for union hiring halls. And it was rejected. It was rejected in San Francisco by, by a, a, a meeting of all the union members in San Francisco. It was rejected in by the, all of the locals in the Pacific Northwest. It didn't give them the key thing they wanted, which was to get rid of the shape up. Uh, and at that point, uh, the Industrial Association simply took control of the employer's side of the strike and said, we're going to open up the port of San Francisco using non-union labor. And they began the process of setting up a trucking company that was non-union because the Teamsters Union had been respecting the, the picket lines. Um, they uh, found a non-union warehouse where they could take goods. They had a ship in, in the bay as a hotel for strike-breaking longshoremen. And they would, instead of the, the strike-breaking longshoremen coming in the front of the pier from the waterfront, they'd come from the back of the pier by boat from this, this uh, hotel ship out in the, in the bay. So they had strike-breakers working on the docks, unloading ships. The docks became just full of cargo that had been unloaded by the strike breakers. And the Industrial Association started setting deadlines for when they were going to completely open the port using strike breakers. Right. And they first said, um, we're going to do it on July 3rd. Uh, and on July 3rd, uh, there were huge crowds of people, longshore strikers, striking seamen, strike supporters from other unions, strike supporters who weren't union members, all up and down the waterfront uh, to try to, to prevent cargo from moving from the piers to a warehouse. Uh, but by, and by the middle of the afternoon on July 3rd, the first trucks moved off of one of the piers behind heavy police barricades to a warehouse and there was just pandemonium sure. um, strikers shouted nasty comments to them threw bricks at them mm -hmm. the police responded uh but and it only lasted for a couple of hours and then then they closed down july 4th was a holiday of course <laughs> everybody sort of paused um there was no work going on. Uh, everybody kind of organized. July 5th was the big confrontation. Uh, on July 5th, there were thousands of strikers and strike supporters confronting hundreds of police, protecting the, the, the trucks moving back and forth between the warehouse and the pier. Uh, again, bricks were thrown. Uh, at some point, there was uh, a fire on on some uh, rail cars. Uh, at uh, the police uh, 
at some point began trying to push the strikers and the strike supporters away from the waterfront, push them off the Embarcadero onto some of the side streets. The strikers resisted. Uh, the police began firing shots, perhaps over their heads, perhaps not. Uh, by the end of the day, two men had been killed by police bullets. A hundred people had been injured, mostly strikers or strike supporters, but also just bystanders, people on streetcars that were hit by bullets. Uh, it was called Bloody Thursday because July 5th in 1934 fell on a Thursday. The term Bloody Thursday was applied the very next day. And it remains Bloody Thursday for Pacific Coast longshore and maritime workers uh, to this day. <laughs> there is an annual Bloody Thursday uh, commemoration all up and down the Pacific Coast uh, every July 5th. It has become a contractual holiday for longshore workers as a constant reminder to their employers of the consequences of this sort of, uh, of uh, anti-union activity. With the events of July 5th, a couple of things began to happen very quickly. The governor sent in the National Guard to patrol the waterfront and to protect the strike breakers. And at that point, uh, the strikers were, would have been facing machine guns and tanks and snipers who had been posted all, National Guard uh, units had been posted all up and down the waterfront. They had snipers on top of the piers. They had machine guns uh, nests at major intersections. They had tanks moving up and down the waterfront. The strikers very wisely said, we're not going to try to stop this, but it's time for all the unions to come together and oppose the police violence, to oppose the use of the National Guard, and to demand collective bargaining for the longshore and maritime workers. And so uh, within days, within the first couple of days of uh, after in fact, the first day afterwards, because the Labor Council met on Friday uh, and there were demands for a general strike. That developed over the next week. The Labor Council essentially took charge at that point. The, the Labor Council being, you know, the citywide central body for all AFL unions. Mm -hmm. um, and the Labor Council set up a general strike committee. They, the Labor Council was, was very careful to follow the rules because the rules said that the Labor Council itself cannot call a strike. A central body can't do that, but each individual local had to call its own strike. Right. And, and the committee established by the Labor Council would be a coordinating committee for these activities. So for four days, San Francisco was shut down by the general strike. The Labor Council began to authorize certain groups immediately to go back to work. For example, 
milk wagon drivers, because at this time, most families had their milk delivered to their door. And the Labor Council recognized immediately that you don't deprive children of their milk. So the, the Labor Council began opening up some of these crucial uh, services uh, almost immediately. During the general strike, Hugh Johnson, who was the head of the National Industrial Recovery Agency of, of FDR's New Deal, came to San Francisco ostensibly to make a speech at the University of California, where he was one of the alumni. But when he arrived in San Francisco, he was immediately taken in hand by some of the representatives of the Industrial Association who tried to persuade him that he should tell the unions that the precondition for any kind of strike settlement is an end to the general strike. Now, that's not the message that the Roosevelt administration was actually giving out privately to other other community leaders in San Francisco. Hmm. But that's the message that Hugh Johnson gave in public, and he gave it to the leaders of the Labor Council, and he seemed to be in a position to be able to be to make commitments for the Roosevelt administration. It's it's clear from the archival sources that he wasn't, but he claimed to be, and the Labor Council took him at his word, and they decided that if they wanted to bring about an end to the strike, uh, that they had to close down the general strike. So it was closed down at the end of the fourth day. Um, but it had served its purpose because during the, gen during the general strike, uh, John Francis Nyland, who was an important local leader of the Republican Party, he was also general consul to the Hearst Corporation, uh, the San Francisco Examiner and other news and the Los Angeles Examiner. Um, he was an important figure in the city's uh, business community. He brought a bunch of steamship executives down to his estate, down the peninsula, and gave them what he called a cold water lunch, no alcohol. <laughs> just a very sober lunch in which he said, very strongly said to them, you did this. Your treatment of your workers, your refusal to arbitrate, your refusal to negotiate has brought this on the city. And I, they knew that up until that point in the strike, it was Nyland who had organized all four of the daily newspapers to take the same line on the strike and the same line on the general strike, which was, of course, opposition. And what Nyland told these steamship executives was, if you don't agree to arbitrate, if you don't agree, we're going to announce in the newspapers that you've agreed and let you deny it. <laughs> so clearly, reluctantly, <laughs> companies agreed to federal arbitration. Now, Roosevelt had appointed an a, a arbitration board that had had a meeting previously, but the companies had not been willing to, to really take full part, but now they were. And the willingness of the companies to arbitrate also pushed the unions 
to agree in the same way. And Bridges accepted that. Bridges, by this point, was the chair of the strike committee of the San Francisco local. And be just before the strike started, uh, the local finally threw out Lee Holman as president. Uh, and there was a, a very weak vice president who moved into that position. But there was essentially a vacuum in the top leadership of the San Francisco local at the very time the strike was beginning. And as chairman of the strike committee, Bridges moved into that vacuum and became the most important person in the San Francisco local. He led the opposition to that phony settlement that Joe Ryan had negotiated. And by the end of the general strike, people were looking to Bridges for leadership. And Bridges had agreed at that point, we should go to arbitration. Uh, and they did. And they and they, while the arbitration was in process, they also agreed to go back to work at the end of July. So that brought an end to the strike. The arbitration uh, was carried out by a, a three-person uh, board appointed by President Roosevelt. They traveled up and down the coast. They went to each port. They held hearings all up and down the coast. And in the end, they gave the unions, the Longshore Union, pretty much what it wanted. They got a coastwise contract with the same working conditions and wages in every port. They didn't get a union hiring hall per se, but they got something very close to it. They got a hiring hall with a union dispatcher, but the union and the employers had to share the cost of the hiring hall. Having the dispatcher as an elected union officer was the crucial element in this. They got preference of employment for union members, which meant that union members would be dispatched for the work first. And if there weren't enough union members available for the amount of work, then non-union members could also be dispatched. But the union got pretty much what it wanted out of the arbitration. And this also set an important precedent for the future because Bridges came to understand that arbitration could really work to the union's advantage. Up until that time, there had been a lot of suspicion about arbitration. Uh, the Communist Party was absolutely dead set against arbitration because it essentially took, it essentially took those decisions out of the hands of the working people. And for many union people, there was a similar suspicion of arbitration, that it was a way of imposing something on workers. Uh, there had been some very bad experiences with arbitration in San Francisco in the 1920s under the, when the arbitration was under the control of the Industrial Association. But the results of this arbitration of the Longshore strike seemed to indicate that there could be important advantages to arbitration. And eventually, Bridges became a strong proponent of arbitration. And the Longshore Union on the Pacific Coast, first the ILA and then 
after 1937, the ILWU, uh, came to see arbitration as a major way to maintain a control over working conditions. Essentially what worked out in some of their contracts by the late 1930s was that uh, the workers on a job, the gang members, had a contractual right to refuse to work under what they considered unsafe conditions. If there weren't enough members in the gang, if the, if the sling loads were too heavy, if there was anything else that was unsafe, they had a contractual right to stop work until an arbitrator arrived. Mm -hmm. And what they did was set up a system of instant arbitration so that an arbitrator would show up and say, yes, this is unsafe. No, it's not. Go back to work. Um, there was also a coastwise arbitrator to deal with situations that affected more than one port or that affected the contract itself. This system of arbitration, as it finally developed in the late 30s and on into the 40s, uh, as nearly as I can have been able to figure out, was pretty unique in the entire world. Mm -hmm. uh, I was at a conference uh, in 1997 uh, in Amsterdam uh, of historians who did the history of longshoring from ports all around the world, uh, Europe, North America, South America, Africa, Asia. Uh, and nobody had encountered a system of arbitration, anything like what the West Coast longshore workers had managed to accomplish. And what they accomplished basically was that the union, the workers controlled the means of production and had a true democracy within, with on, within the boats, on the docks, on the beach, wherever, that they right. had an exact moment to say, this is our dignity, and so we want someone to talk about it right away. So this, exactly. made, this made Harry Bridges a very dangerous man in the eyes of the government. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who could imagine that he, he took the idea of what the Roosevelt administration said and took it 100% even further? what the IWW is talking about and the Communist Party talks about. So no wonder he was under the eyes of Hoover. No wonder he was under the eyes of um, Jagger Hoover all the way up to the Kennedys. So that leads to me is like the many people forget that he was brought to trial many times to get him kicked out of the country, right? How many times was that? Well, uh, depending on how you count, uh, I think four, <laughs> is, four is, is the right number. So what comes after the ILWU flexes this muscle? What happens next to Harry Bridges when the establishment finds out that he has too much power? Well, get ready for the trials of the 20th century that we never knew about in the next episode of Tales from the Ruther and the Life and Times of Harry Bridges. But I asked to do a little plug now also for our scholarships that we offer. There is going to be the Albert Shanker Travel Fellowship that will be posted on our website shortly, as well as the Fishman Award. Beginning in November, we will have these applications up. Please submit your applications and checking our website so you can earn some money to come to the Walter Ruther, meet Troy, shake her hand, and say thanks for the great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.
Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. We're recording this a couple of weeks in advance. <laughs> so we have no idea what the hell's going on out there. <laughs> Are the strikes over? Are there even more of them? <laughs>